Simon and Schuster Audio presents Buffetology. The previously unexplained techniques that have made Warren Buffett the world's most famous investor. By Mary Buffett and David Clark. Read by Mary Buffett. Warren Buffett did not participate in making this program, and I'm sure he never envisioned that I, Mary Buffett, his former daughter-in-law, would be the one to reveal his extraordinary system of business perspective investing. In the 1970s, I was a businesswoman in music publishing. I also managed a successful import-export business. But in 1981, after a very romantic courtship, I married his son Peter, and found myself a member of one of the world's wealthiest families. F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote that the very rich are different from you and me. He was right. But they're different in the strangest of ways, the oddest being the code of silence they demand of family and friends. While married to Peter, I was instructed never to speak to anyone outside of the family about Warren and his investment operations. Giving out details of Warren's investment techniques simply would have been out of the question. But in 1993, Peter and I were divorced. It shattered my heart and the code of silence. I was free to explain how Warren Buffett turned an initial $105,000 investment in the stock market into a $20 billion fortune. I felt competent to present the qualitative side of his method of business perspective investing. But I knew that I needed someone to fully explain the quantitative side. So I got in touch with David Clark, an investment analyst and longtime Buffett family friend in Omaha, whom I had met at Warren's home 16 years before. David is considered by many in and outside the Buffett camp to be one of the most gifted young Buffettologists practicing today. He is also something of a financial historian. David consented to help and soon became a major proponent in creating the definitive work on Warren's investment methods. Warren Buffett's interest in teaching his philosophy to his family ebbed and flowed. In the early years of my marriage, Warren celebrated Christmas morning by tossing out to each one of his children and their spouses envelopes with a gift of $10,000 in cash. Like a jolly billionaire version of old St. Nicholas, he would fling the envelopes across the room laughing, Merry Christmas, to each of the delighted recipients. Later, he decided that we should be taking a stronger interest in the family business and replace the $10,000 in cash with $10,000 worth of stock in a business in which he had recently invested. The stock of Capital Cities, Freddie Mac, and Service Master were some of the great companies I found in my Christmas stocking. It didn't take long to figure out that as bountiful as Christmas was, it was even more profitable to add to our newly acquired stock positions. Without fail, these Christmas gifts would dramatically increase in value. They were more than just Christmas gifts or stock tips. They were Warren's way of getting us to pay attention to the companies that these stocks represented. Walter Schloss, a great investor and longtime friend of Warren's, once said that you never really know a company until you own part of it. 
he was absolutely right. With each Christmas gift, annual reports and dividend checks would start appearing in the mail. The Wall Street Journal became a household fixture, and we all began carefully tracking our newly acquired interests in these wonderful businesses. I realized Warren had little use for typical Wall Street banter. He didn't seem to care which way the Dow Jones Industrial Average went, and he certainly had no use for all the soothsayers and their predictions. In fact, he acted as if the entire stock market didn't exist. He seemed to care only about the individual businesses he was interested in owning. He is an intensely focused individual. As any good buffetologist would, I began reading the old annual reports of his company, Berkshire Hathaway, as well as Warren's original letters to his limited partners, all of which were fascinating. I was also fortunate to be on hand the few times that Warren lectured to graduate business students at Stanford University. Peter and I would sit in the back of the room with a video camera, recording Dad for posterity. It was around this time that Warren began showing an interest in teaching the grandchildren. I'll always remember the day I discovered our eight-year-old twin girls curled up on the living room sofa with the Wall Street Journal spread out before them. They had just returned from visiting Grandpa's home in Omaha, and I couldn't help but be amused at what I found. Jokingly, I asked if they had any investment ideas. They looked up and replied, Pillsbury and then rattled off a list of consumer monopolies that Warren had taught them Pillsbury owned. The most fascinating to them were Burger King and Haagen-Dazs ice cream. As Warren says, invest in companies that make products you understand. Pillsbury was bought out a few years later by Grand Metropolitan, at about double the price it was trading at when the twins made their recommendation. I started to see Warren as a sort of collector, Instead of collecting expensive paintings, palatial mansions, million-dollar yachts, or the other clutter in which many super-rich fill their lives, he collects excellent businesses. He has spent the majority of his life searching out a particular kind of business in which to invest. He calls it a consumer monopoly. These are the Coca-Colas, General Electrics, and even smaller firms upon which consumers depend heavily, against which new competitors are largely powerless. They bring in a steady flow of cash, like the toll taker at the only bridge into town. Later on, we'll discuss the consumer monopoly in greater detail. I noticed that Warren, like any sophisticated collector, was very careful about the price he was willing to pay for one of these trophy businesses. In fact, the price for the business absolutely determined whether he would buy it. I'm not talking about whether he could afford it. That's a given. He was simply looking for the right deal. I discovered that Warren first identifies what he wants to buy and then lets the price of the security determine whether it should be bought. These are two distinct thoughts, what to buy and at what price. That's what this program is about, how Warren determines what companies he wants to invest in and what price he's willing to pay. Sounds simple, doesn't it? It is, if you're willing to learn Buffetology step by step. First, 
I'd like to introduce a few concepts and terms that will be used throughout and give you an idea of where we will be heading as we voyage through the sea of high finance. Let's take the term intrinsic value. Its definition has been debated for the last hundred years. It fits into our scheme because Warren will buy into a business only when it's selling at a price that makes business sense given a company's intrinsic value. Determining intrinsic value is a key to deciphering Warren's investment philosophy. To Warren, the intrinsic value of an investment is the projected annual compounding rate of return that the investment will produce. It is this rate of return that Warren uses to determine if the investment makes business sense. Warren projects a future value for the business, say 10 years out, then he compares the price he is going to pay for the business against that value, taking into account the length of time required for a business to get there. By using a mathematical equation, Warren is able to project the annual compounding rate of return. In its simplest manifestation, it works like this. If Warren can buy a share of a corporation for $10, and can project that in 10 years the share will be worth $50, he can then calculate that his projected annual compounding rate of return will approximately be 17.46% for the 10-year period. It is this percentage that he will compare to other investments to determine if the investment makes business sense. You may be wondering, if Warren's intrinsic value model requires projecting the future value of a business, how does he go about determining that future value? That, my friends, is the crux of solving the enigma of Warren's investment philosophy. Just how does one determine the future earnings of a business in order to project its future value and its intrinsic value? This problem and Warren's method of solving it are centerpieces of this program. But here's the short answer. Warren will make long-term investments only in businesses whose future earnings are predictable to a high degree of certainty. The certainty of future earnings eliminates the element of risk from the equation and allows for a sound determination of a business's future value. To sum up, Warren Buffett's secrets for successful investing from a business perspective are the following. One, Warren will invest long-term only in companies whose future earnings he can reasonably predict. Two, in his view, predictable earnings come from companies with excellent business economics. That means a business makes plenty of money to acquire more businesses or invest in its own profitability. 3. To find a company with excellent business economics, Warren will look for consistently high returns on shareholders' equity and strong earnings which make it a consumer monopoly. Warren also looks for corporate management that functions with the shareholders' economic interests in mind. 4. Of course, price is central to Warren. The price you pay for a security will determine the return you can expect on your investment. The lower the price, the greater your return. The greater the price, the lower your return.
Unlike other investment professionals, Warren chooses the kind of business he would like to be in and then lets the price of the security and his expected rate of return determine the buy decision. This is like Warren in high school, identifying a girl he wants to date and then waiting for her to break up with her boyfriend before beginning his pursuit. 5. Warren also raises expectations. He figured out that investing at the right prices in certain businesses with exceptional economics working in their favor will produce an annual compounding rate of return of 15% or better over the long term. This is just a sketch of the landscape of Buffettology. Now, let's explore it more deeply. The late Benjamin Graham, Wall Street's high priest of investment philosophy, author of four editions of the masterful treatise on investing called Security Analysis, was Warren Buffett's professor at Columbia University, his employer at the New York investment firm of Graham Newman, and his mentor and friend for nearly 30 years. It was Graham who taught Warren that investments are most intelligent when they are most businesslike. If there is a single credo that Warren holds sacred and to which he attributes his success, it is this concept. Warren's path to riches began in 1957 when friends and family invested $105,000 in his investment limited partnership. Warren's wealth today is valued in excess of $20 billion. Without Graham's tenant of investing from a business perspective guiding the way, Warren's performance as an investor might have been no better than average. With it, he has created one of the greatest fortunes in contemporary history. But as we dissect Warren's investment philosophy, you will see that there were many influences. Warren Buffett is part Benjamin Graham, from whom he took the concepts of investing from a business perspective and emphasizing price as a major motivating factor in selecting investments. He is part Philip Fisher, the legendary California money manager and author, from whom he took the idea that the only business worth investing in is one with excellent business economics. From Fisher, he also learned that the time to sell an excellent business is never. Warren is also part Lawrence N. Bloomberg, the 1930s thinker and author, who taught him the superior investment value of the consumer monopoly. Another influence was John Burr Williams, the 1930s mathematician, financial philosopher, and author of The Theory of Investment Value, from whom both Graham and later Warren acquired the idea that a business's worth is related to what it will earn in the future. Who else made Warren possible? He is part Lord John Maynard Keynes, the famed British economist and author, from whom Warren derived the concept of the concentrated portfolio and the importance of learning one area of investment well and not straying from it. And Warren is part Edgar Smith, who in 1924 wrote the then much heralded but now long forgotten Common Stocks as Long-Term Investments, 
which introduced to Graham the concept of retained earnings, adding value to the business over a period of time. Most important, Warren Buffett is part Charlie Munger, legal pundit and financial empresario, who, as Warren's friend and partner, persuaded him to focus on the more sophisticated philosophy of purchasing excellent businesses at prices that made business sense, instead of seeking only bargains, which was more Graham's philosophy. This is an eclectic group of people whose writings span nearly a hundred years of thought on the subject of investing in securities. Graham was aware of all these philosophies, but it took Warren's extraordinary and unique turn of mind to synthesize them into a strategy that would excel each of their individual efforts. We'll begin your education in Buffetology with a basic tenet of Graham's philosophy and one that is the foundation of Warren's own thinking. This is investing from a business perspective. Investing from a business perspective is the most challenging concept you will hear in this program, not because it requires financial and accounting knowledge, which it does, but rather because it's so different from the prevailing wisdom peddled by the great investment houses of Wall Street. Having a business perspective on investing is more about discipline than philosophy, and once the concept is understood, it demands absolute devotion. Stray from it, and you will wander the financial lunar landscape, forever dancing to the folly called forth by fear and greed. Adhere to its wisdom, and the foolishness of others becomes the field in which you reap your harvest. What exactly is business-like investing? It means that one stops thinking of the stock market as an end unto itself and begins thinking about the economics of ownership of those businesses that the common stocks represent. Your stockbroker calls you up and says he thinks XYZ stock is a timely buy and that in the last week it has moved up three points. Stop right there. A common stock is a partial ownership interest in a business enterprise. That's right, a business. Your stockbroker is trying to entrap you in the enthusiasm of the horse race of numbers found every morning in the Wall Street Journal. But common stocks are in fact tangible representations of the equity owner's interest in a particular business. It was Professor Benjamin Graham who taught Warren that instead of asking what security, at what price, to ask instead in what enterprise and on what terms is the commitment proposed. This puts the line of questioning into a more business-like perspective. Warren's chief idea is to buy excellent businesses at a price that makes business sense. So, what makes business sense? In Warren's world, making business sense means that the business invested in will offer you, the investor, the highest predictable annual compounding rate of return possible with the least amount of risk. The reason Warren is able to do this better than other investment managers is that he is motivated by the long term, just like a business owner would be, and not like most Wall Street investment professionals, by the short term. Think of it this way. If I offered to sell you the local corner drugstore, you would look at the accountant's books and determine how much money the business is making. If you see that it's profitable, 
you'd then try to figure out whether or not the profits are consistent, or if they vary a great deal. If you determine that the profitability of the drugstore has been consistent, then you'd ask yourself whether that could change materially. If the answer is no, you would ask what the store is selling for. Once you know the asking price, you would then compare it with the drugstore's yearly earnings and determine what kind of return you would get. A $100,000 asking price against earnings of $20,000 a year would offer you a yearly return of 20% on your money. Once you know the projected return, you can shop around to determine whether a 20% return on your money is a good investment. You would, in effect, be comparing rates of return. If it looks attractive, you make your purchase. This is precisely how Warren works. Whether he is buying an entire business or fractional portions, he asks himself, how much money can this business predictably earn and what is the asking price? When he gets the answers to these questions, he can do some comparison shopping. This is not how the prevailing Wall Street wisdom would have you operate. Warren and the buyer of the drugstore anticipate holding the business for a long period of time in order to get full advantage of ownership. A 20% return a year for, say, 15 years is a nice ride. Wall Street, on the other hand, looks at a business from a short-term perspective. It wants the quick kill. A 20% return this year might not be enough to win an investor a spot on the top list of money managers. In the game of money management, a few bad quarters can mean the end of your career, so today outweighs tomorrow in importance. If the drugstore were truly a good business with an attractive return and you bought it, would you then sell it if someone were to offer you 35% more for it than what you paid? A fast 35%? Wall Street would take that in a heartbeat. Warren wouldn't. He'd say that it's a good business with a predictable 20% return, which is hard to find. And a fast 35% will cause even quicker tax consequences, which would reduce my return to approximately 25%. If I cash out, I might be stuck reinvesting my money in lower-paying investments. Warren, like any good businessman, likes to keep a good business. To Warren, the ownership of the powers of production in the right businesses is of greater value over the long term than the short-term profits usually promoted by Wall Street. Next, in order to understand Warren's view of investing from a business perspective, you must understand his very unorthodox view of a corporation's earnings. First, he considers them his in proportion to his ownership in the company. So if a company earns $5 a share and Warren owns 100 shares of the company, he is of the opinion that he has just earned $500, whether it's paid out to him via dividend or retained for reinvestment. Warren believes that the stock market will, over a period of time, acknowledge this increase in the company's underlying value and cause the stock's price to increase. This differs from the view most Wall Street professionals hold. They don't consider earnings theirs until the earnings are paid out via dividends. In the early 80s, the stock of Warren's holding company, Berkshire Hathaway, traded at $500 a share. Today, 
It trades at around $45,000 a share, and it still has never paid a dividend. The increase in the market price of the stock came from an increase in the underlying value of the company, caused by Warren's profitable reinvestment of Berkshire's retained earnings. Warren believes that a company should retain all its earnings if it can profitably employ them at a rate of return that is better than the investor could get by taking delivery of those earnings via a dividend. And since dividends are taxed as personal income, there is a tax incentive to letting the corporation retain all its earnings. The test to which management should hold itself in determining whether or not to pay out a dividend is this, according to Warren. Would the investors slash owners be better off removing the capital from the business and investing it in other enterprises? For example, let's say Company A has a great business that makes lots of money. Now, if the management can profitably put to work the money that the great business earns, then it would make sense to let the management continue its course and improve the fortunes of the company. But if management makes foolish investment decisions with the company's earnings and ends up losing money, then the shareholders would have been better off taking earnings out of the company and investing them on their own. This is one of the reasons why excellent management is important to Warren. With Berkshire Hathaway, Warren has managed to employ retained earnings at approximately a 23% compounding annual rate of return after corporate income tax. This means that each $1 of earnings that Berkshire retains will annually produce a 23% return. If Berkshire chose to pay out the 23% to its owners, they would be taxed at personal income tax rates, which would thus reduce the return to approximately 15.9%. Following this line of thinking, Warren has come to the conclusion that common stocks bear a resemblance to bonds that have variable rates of return, depending upon their earnings for a particular year. He realized that some common stocks have underlying businesses that create consistent enough earnings to allow him to project their future rate of return. In Warren's world, the common stock takes on the characteristics of a bond, with the payable interest being the net earnings of the business. How does he calculate his rate of return? He divides the price he pays for the stock by the company's annual net per share earnings. A $10 per share asking price for the company's stock against annual net per share earnings of $2 equates to a rate of return of 20%. Understand, though, that the integrity of this calculation is wholly dependent upon the predictability of the company's earnings. Warren does this type of analysis whether he's buying an entire company or one share of a company. The price he pays determines his rate of return. This is the key that you should wear around your neck at all times. It is the one tenant of Benjamin Graham's that Warren lives by. Let's ask a simple question. If I were willing to sell you the right to receive $1,100 at the end of one year, what is the maximum you'd be willing to pay for this right on day one? If you paid me $1,100 and I paid you back $1,100 at the end of the year, 
the return on your investment for the year would be zero. However, if you paid me $1,000 for the right to receive $1,100 at the end of one year, your return would be $100 above the $1,000 that you paid me, which would give you a return of 10% on your money for the year. Now, your next question is whether or not a return of 10% is a good rate of return when compared to other rates of return. To determine this, you need to shop around a bit. You might find that the local bank is willing to pay you 7% on your money if you deposit it there for one year. This means that if you loan the bank $1,000 for one year, it would, at the end of that year, give you back $1,070 which equates to a $70 profit, or a rate of return of 7%. Obviously, the 10% return on your money that I offered you is better than the bank's 7%. If you looked around at a lot of different investments and still found that the 10% return was a higher rate of return than other investments were paying, you would conclude that I was offering you a better deal than the others. Then, in answer to our question, what is the maximum you'd be willing to pay today for the right to receive $1,100 in one year? If you wanted at least a 10% return on your money, the maximum you'd be willing to pay is $1,000. If you paid more, say $1,050, your profit would be less by $50, a 4.7% rate of return instead of 10%. If you paid less, say $950, your profit would be $150 and your return would be greater. $950 invested means $150 is gained, which is a 15.7% return. The higher the price, the lower the rate of return. The lower the price, the higher the rate of return. Pay more, get less. Pay less, get more. Financial analysts use a mathematical equation called discounting to present value to calculate this. This equation allows them to plug in the future value, the rate of interest desired, and the time period to determine the present value. Using this equation is extremely time-consuming, often involving a series of calculations and the use of tables. To fully understand its use, one must usually take a college course in finance or business math. Fortunately, the folks at Texas Instruments have programmed the equation into the BA35 solar calculator, so you and I have only to learn how to punch buttons to come up with the present value. Or, if we want, we can find out the future value of a sum growing at the rate of X for Y number of years. We can even figure out the annual compounding rate of return on an investment if we know 1, the present value, 2, the future value, and 3, the holding period of the investment. And since projecting an annual compounding rate of return on an investment is the key to understanding Warren, I recommend that you acquire one of these useful and reasonably priced instruments now. Walmart carries them as well as most office supply stores and university bookstores. The one thing that should be readily apparent is that strength and predictability of earnings are an important consideration if you are holding a stock for any length of time. If you purchase a stock for $25 a share, 
and it had earnings in the most recent year of $5 a share, which equates to a 20% return, and the next year the company earns nothing, the annual rate of return on your investment goes to zero. What Warren wants are companies with business economics and management that create reasonably predictable earnings. Only then is it possible for Warren to predict the future rate of return on his investment and the merit of a company. Before we move on, let's review the key concepts. The price you pay will determine the rate of return you are going to get on your investment. In order to determine the rate of return, you must be able to reasonably predict the company's future earnings. And the three variables you will constantly address when using Warren's system of analysis are 1. The yearly per share earnings figure 2. Its predictability and 3. The market price of the security. The higher the market price, the lower the rate of return. And the lower the market price, the greater the rate of return. The higher the per share earnings, the greater the return, given the market price for the security. All this may make perfect sense to you, or maybe not. A real-world example can't hurt. In 1979, Warren Buffett started buying up the stock of a company called General Foods, paying an average price of $37 a share for approximately 4 million shares. What Warren saw in this company was strong earnings in the prior year, 1978, of $4.65 per share. Since General Foods' earnings were growing at an average annual rate of 8.7%, we, like Warren, could project that the company's earnings would grow from $4.65 a share in 1978 to $5.05 .05 a share in 1979. So, if we paid $37 for a share of General Foods in 1979, we would be getting an initial rate of return of 13.6% for our first year. We divide the company's earnings of $5.05 .05 per share by the price we paid, $37, to get 13.6%. If interest rates the rates of return, for example, on long-term U.S. Treasury bonds are around 10%, which they were back then, then a 13.6% rate of return on the General Foods investment looks pretty good. And we project that the rate of return is going to increase each year by 8.7%. So your share of General Foods stock, with its initial rate of return of 13.6%, which is going to grow at a rate of 8.7% a year, appears to be a better investment than the government bond paying a static rate of return of 10% a year. If you are making a strict business decision, based on projected performance, an investment in general foods appears to be a much better investment than the government bond. Now, if we paid more for our general food stock, say $67 a share, then we could calculate that our initial rate of return would be less. On 1979 earnings of $5.05 .05 a share, with a cost of $67 a share, our General Foods investment 
would produce an initial rate of return of only 7.5%. This is much lower than the initial rate of return of 13.6% we were projecting to earn at a purchase price of $37 a share. Likewise, a 7.5% rate of return is not nearly as competitive as the government bond that is paying a 10% rate of return. Price determines everything. Once a price is quoted, it is possible to figure your expected rate of return and then compare it to other rates of return. They are simple comparisons to make. That is why Warren is famous for making extremely fast business decisions. He simply calculates the annual compounding rate of return he expects an investment to produce, and then he determines whether it's what he's looking for. Warren believed that since General Foods was earning him an initial rate of return of 13.6%, which would increase at a rate of 8.7% a year, over a period of time, the stock market would acknowledge this increase in value and adjust the stock's price upwards. And from 1978 to 1984, General Foods' per share earnings rose at an average annual rate of approximately 7% from $4.65 a share to $6.96 a share. During this period, the stock market reappraised the stock's price upward to approximately $54 a share in 1984. Then in 1985, the Philip Morris Company saw the value of General Foods' many brand-name products, which created a strong and expanding earnings base, and bought all of Warren's General Food stock for $120 a share in a tender offer for the whole company. This gave Warren a pre-tax annual compounding rate of return on his investment of approximately 21%. That's right, a pre-tax annual compounding rate of return of 21%. A nice number in anybody's book.